Do you do you did this fulfill your curiosity about who was responsible for both of the murders with Biggie Smalls and Tupac? Do you feel pretty clear about who is responsible? Uh, well, I do. I mean, I've always felt that, that you know that there's there's a sort of payback in the murders, but I don't think the murders are joined. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm thrilled to have on the show documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield. He has a new documentary called Last Man Standing, which is a follow-up to his 2002 documentary about the murders of Biggie and Tupac. And this one is fantastic, as are almost all of his films that I've seen. I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen most of his work. Kurt and Courtney, the Heidi Fleiss documentary, The Grim Sleeper, documentary, probably my favorite from 2015, 100 victims in in Los Angeles for the Grim Sleeper. Uh, Nick, is, Nick is a profoundly important documentary filmmaker that I don't know that you have Louis Theroux or Morgan Spurlock or Michael Moore or John Runson because he really created a template and a kind of gold standard. And um, so I've always wanted to talk to him. And we talked about a number of the films he's made, a number of the characters in those films, and a little bit about some of the films that maybe he would have wanted to have made. But uh, Nick is a very friendly person, um, and I was just really happy to be able to engage him about his work, because I've been a fan for a long time, and he's not just one of those people that you want to just watch the documentary once to get the, the, the kind of score of it. They're so imminently rewatchable. And I think that's a real testament to him as somebody guiding you through these incredible worlds and, and discovering characters that you never expected to meet within these milieus. So, uh, yeah, he's somebody very special. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nick, Nick Broomfield this week on Tourist Information. Thank you so much for sending the film. I watched it last night and really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Good. I'm pleased. It was a hard one to make. I mean, yeah. it was difficult. It was a slightly painful one to make. Well, what necessitated it? Because, you know, in, in your whole canon, you've not followed up on previous documentaries that I'm aware of. So Yeah, I, I, I followed up on Eileen Warnos. Okay, yeah, true. Sorry. But it's I, followed not a on, I followed up on the Eugene Terrablanche film as well. Okay. I did um, The Leader, The Driver, and then I did uh, uh, Two White, uh, what was it called? God, I can't even remember. His Big White Self, I think, or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. His Big White Self. So what necessitated this film of returning to this subject matter for you, and what were the challenges of returning to it? Well, I think Russell Paul, the investigating officer in the original 2002 film that I made, was treated really very badly by the LAPD. He was ridiculed, and he was a passionate man. He was certainly not into it for the money. He was a man of, of belief, and I think uh, was humiliated and uh, I think became very depressed and, you know, ended up 
having a massive heart attack and dying in the sheriff's office in 2015, still arguing his case that Iggy Smalls was uh, killed uh, by uh, LAPD police officers. Um, and um, subsequent to that, a film came out on Netflix called Murder Rap, which uh, was done by basically Greg Kading, who was an LAPD police officer who headed the task force looking into the Biggie Smalls murder when the Biggie Smalls estate, his mother, Valletta Wallace, was taking a lawsuit against the LAPD for $500 million. And it was basically a task force set up to come up with some other possible explanation that would throw a spanner in the works for the that particular lawsuit. And Greg Kagan came up with this theory that it was done by a bankment uh, member called Pucci and uh, that the LAPD were, weren't in any way involved. Um which I, you know, I had, I'd obviously had the murder book. Russell had given it to me. I'd spent a lot of time researching it. Um, I was very doubtful that Greg Kading's theory was in any way correct, but I felt um, sufficiently um, convinced that he was possibly wrong that I decided to embark on another film. I was also very interested in how Death Row Records really worked. I was, you know, it's very hard as a, as a Brit to understand how a record company could be run by, effectively by gang members, and that the gang uh, mentality could really run a record company that was so enormously successful. Um, and, you know, I'd heard stories about what went on in the record company, but decided that to find out myself, mainly I think because a lot of the gang members who were still alive were much more prepared to talk than they were when I had made my original film. So uh, I wanted to get a, a more of a portrait of Suge Knight, the man, and 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 Death Row Records, and 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 it's just kind of day to day workings, I guess. But that mm. fascinated fascinated me a lot. And it was the Death Row Records was the most sec successful rap label in history, right? Absolutely. It just uh, it was like printing money. And uh, there were some unanswered questions about it, um, such as, you know, where the money actually went, um, why no one really got paid. I mean, you know, Tupac made all these incredibly successful albums and, and, and never seemed to get any money. In fact, when he died, he was in debt. So there were, there were a lot of ancillary questions that I felt would be very interesting to explore. And, well, and, and I, sorry. sorry, carry on. I was just going to say, and, and your portrait of the LAPD's 
involvement, their nefarious involvement and corruption, uh, I thought echoed a lot of, uh, I think, my favorite film of yours, The Grim Sleeper, and also um, your portrait of them is so damning in that film. I just thought there was a lot of overlap between the two on top of the services of the incredible Pam Brooks that you used yes. in Last Man Standing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because my introduction to the LAPD was when I first came to California, which was in the 70s. Uh, the mother of, of my, uh, my son, my eldest son, uh, Barney, uh, she's called May Church, and she ran something called the Urban Policy Research Institute, which was based um, basically in Watts. And it, it looked into uh, police malpractice, and particularly in the Watts-Compton area. And, and she actually offered help to people who felt that they had been taken advantage of or they didn't have representation and so on. You know, she was a, a Beverly Hills woman, but very left-wing and very committed to trying to get justice, particularly with regard to the way the city was policed. And so, she, you know, she was a big influence, really, and, and kind of very much my introduction to uh, the LAPD. And uh, it was it was one of those things that really attracted me to the story in the first place. And then I watched them kind of lie and manipulate evidence and, and hide evidence, you know, for which they were fined a million dollars at one point. Um, and I just felt, I mean, you know, it's so much part of the present zeitgeist anyway. I just felt there was a lot of unanswered questions and I was still very interested. And, and you funnily offered... enough, it, it, funnily enough it, there was a there was a this is a kind of an aside. I don't know if it's interesting or not, but when I was doing you, you mentioned Tales of the Grim Sleeper. When I was doing Tales of the Grim Sleeper, there was this guy called Dupree. Dupree was a police officer who was handling the case. He was handling the families who had lost. Um, loved ones to the grim sleeper and he was very much in charge of the case and and i had dealings with dupree and dupree basically just tried to keep the families quiet and and just to sort of put a lid on the whole thing he you know the last thing he wanted to do was to admit that the lapd had been as inefficient as they were allowing this guy to get away with killing all these people and, and they don't even know how many it could be in the hundreds uh, for sort of 25 years. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the guy who is now in charge of this case is Dupree. Mm. And he's a best friend with Kading. And they work together on this. Now, I didn't bother going into all that because it's, a part, it's, it's part of my own personal history. But I know who these guys are. And I know right. how they work. And, you know, they are as, dishonest and manipulative as they come. And uh, originally, Dupree came up to me. In fact, when I was working on the Grim Sleeper case, he came up to me and said, you should read, uh, you should read a book by my, uh, a friend of mine on the force, uh, Paul Kading. Um, 
he knows who killed Biggie Smalls, actually. Oh, okay. Um, and, which I didn't read at the time, but, you know, I looked at it afterwards. And, and I just, you know, the, these guys just pick as thieves. And uh, I just feel it's, you know, it's the same, basically the same things have happened, which is the most important thing is to keep the name of the LAPD clean. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, sit on evidence and you, you know, that it's, it's exactly the same format that happened here as, as happened there. Hmm. And and your 2002 film, you offer revelation in Last Man Standing that it prompted an FBI investigation to be opened into the case. Yeah. which I didn't know about until I started making this film, This, you know, in the last year and a half. Right. You know, but, and, and, you know, we were speaking, actually, to the boss of, um, of um, what's his name, of Carlson, who, who was, uh, you know, the guy who's being quoted. And uh, he offered us this information that, you know, oh, wow, yeah, we, we, we know, um, what was his name? Um, no, I had his name down somewhere. I've, I've completely forgotten his name. Anyway, he he said, "Oh yes, you know, we all watched your film, and uh, you know, when uh, Phil Carson brought it up, you know, we we decided, yeah, there's definitely basis for investigation here. So they launched their own investigation, and and Carson came up with all this, uh, you know, evidence of his own that supported Russell Poole's theory." And then, of course, was prevented from actually testifying on behalf of the uh, Biggie Smalls estate. Hmm. Do you do you did this fulfill your curiosity about who was responsible for both of the murders with Biggie Smalls and Tupac? Do you feel pretty clear about who is responsible? Uh, well, I do. I mean, I've always felt that that you know that. There's there's a sort of payback in the murders, but I don't think the murders are joined by. Uh, I don't think that, that you know it's the same killing. It's the same. I think one. I think the the two pack murder was in a way an accidental thing that happened. It was a kind of crime of passion, in a way. It was payback. It was payback for two pack attacking the wrong person. And I never, I always question Russell's original, Russell, Russell Poole's original theory that um, Suge Knight had wanted to get rid of Tupac because he was leaving death row because it, it seems so crazy to be in, in, in a car with 15 bullets going into it and if you don't want to get killed yourself. I mean, it just seemed an unlikely hypothesis and then there was you know the gang guys that I spoke to like Mob James uh, and and Lip Dog and these other people who were around at the time with Death Row Security they all said that Orlando Anderson had gone around Compton bragging that he had you know killed Tupac he had shot and killed Tupac and then I guess you know the one bit of policing that I respected that Greg Kading did was to get Keithy D to come forward and 
be very clear about Orlando Anderson doing the killing. I, I you know, and I, I, I told Greg Koenig when I met him, I, I, I felt that um, this was that I thought it was a very, a very good bit of uh, work that he had done, but but he kind of tried to join the killing of Tupac up with the killing of Biggie in some way. And, and they're just so entirely different. The whole modus operandi was completely different. Instead of 15 bullets, there were five bullets all shot in a straight line that clearly were the work of a marksman. And they all hit the target. They didn't hmm. sort of zoom around the, 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 the vehicle in a hodgepodge way. Um, and it was it was a precision hit. It was over and done with. It's you know, in in a matter of seconds, in a, in a part of town that was highly highly policed. Right. There were police everywhere at the uh, Soul Train Awards. You know that, and I think. So I think it's a mistake to join the two murders up too much. I mean, they happen to be, you know, they're joined because they happen to be the two top hip-hop artists of the, of the day. But uh, the actual murders were, were very, very different. And for you personally covering this story where, I mean, in Last Man Standing, there's an inventory of how many people have been killed as a result of this feud, the East Coast, West Coast thing, what kind of threats did you encounter covering this? I mean, you go to prison to interview Shook Knight, which was incredible. Um, but I but I am curious. It seems like all of the parties involved here would not welcome the intervention of a documentary filmmaker. Um, I, I remember, you know, Death Row, and I guess one of the reasons it intrigues me so much is that I did get threats from Death Row. You know, I was dealing with Reggie Wright Jr., you know, who himself was a police officer at one point, um, who was very, um, yeah, overly, outwardly, you know, just sort of like, what flight are you coming in on? Wh wh which hotel will you be staying on? We don't, you know, he w he didn't want me to introduce Suge Knight in, in prison. And, and he had told me that uh, if I went to the prison, no one would talk to me, and, and Suge Knight certainly wouldn't talk to me. And so he was very threatening about, you know, when I said, well, I've got permission to film at this prison anyway, I'm going to go. He was, he was, he, he was very threatening. And um, I just thought this is, this is a bizarre behavior, you know. I mean, I'm not, you know, you don't get threatened that often as a filmmaker. The rest of my crew all freaked out and wouldn't come to the prison with me because they all had, you know, you have to put your address in the business's book and stuff, you know and show your driver's licenses and all that sort of thing. So, um, but there was that kind of thing. There were other threats too, you know. Uh, and, and of course, he's a very menacing man. I met him out of uh, the prison too, actually in the Beverly Hills Polo Lounge. He was very, very threatening there. Hmm. Um, but it, it wasn't the sort of thing that, I immediately thought about, you know, I think what happens is you get into a project and you, you know, you're intellectually gripped by the dynamics of it and trying to solve something and you, you don't think that much about uh, your safety, I suppose. 
Well, it's, I mean, it's funny you say that because, I mean, in, in Tales of the Grim Sleeper, there's a scene where you're in an alley, I believe in South Central, where gunshots go off. It looks like maybe half a block away. Everybody that you're surrounded with kind of freaks out except you. And actually, the first gesture you make as the cameraman seems to be looking to you for direction is, don't film me, film the gunshots. <laughs> and I, I just wonder, where do you get – I interviewed the – the war journalist uh, Ben Anderson, and mm. he has a similar quality to that. But I'm wondering, like, where did you acquire that? You're you're not covering war zones regularly as as he is. No, I, that no, I know ben determination. Well, I know Ben well, and I, I've often told Ben I'm really worried about his 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 flirtations with death. Which, Me too. Which I don't see it. Yeah, I, and I love him. I think he's a, such a great guy. I often feel I'm sort of like a, a weird father figure that, that is telling him to just look after himself and, you know, uh, not push himself so far. I don't, you know, I... I um, well, often I think by the time you hear the gunshots, particularly in something like... Uh, somewhere like Compton... Um, it, that's probably it. It's not going to be prolonged gunfire, you know. So I, I was just kind of indicating that, um, he, you know, he should definitely be shooting me. Uh, you know, there, there's not it, probably, you know, the last thing you want to do really when there's gunfire anyway is start running around. You're much more likely to get shot then than if you stay, stay put. Uh, you know, because they're just most of them are bad shots, you know. <laughs> um, but you're skirting a little. The question is, how do you acquire such nerves? Like, I, I, I get baffled by some filmmakers that go to the places that we need as lovers of documentaries, and they seem to calm down as our anxiety ramps up with interviewing yeah. people and the situations. I just wonder, did you always have that quality? Yeah, I, I think I, I I am calm in chaos. I, you know, I, I do feel, I normally feel quite clear when mm. there's a lot of chaos going on. Um, but I don't I don't like it and I don't court it. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't want to go into a war zone unless I had some big investment in the people in the place. Uh, I think, it, you know, I think if it was my own little village that was being attacked, I would feel differently. But I wouldn't want to go to some remote place and delve around particularly. Um, and, that, you know, that shooting incident just sort of happened, I think, you know, and it wasn't anything to do with us being there. It was just the way Compton, Compton can be at at. Most of the time, you know, it's um, it's a safe place, and the people are really friendly, and they value you being there. They, uh, you know, um, and if you're not a gang member, I think, and you don't have an investment in selling drugs or anything, and you're not encroaching on someone else's turf, you're, you know, people are very respectful and cooperative, and. Uh, it's one, you know, my friends who live in L.A. are always horrified when you say you're going to Compton. But when we were making 
uh, Tales of Grim Sleeper, especially, we made a lot of friends down there. You know, I made it with Barney, my son, and I certainly wouldn't have taken him down there. It was very funny, actually, because um, originally we started, Tiffany Haddish was the researcher we had on that film. This was before she became famous, because she was from that area. And, um, you know, she she actually had grown up a couple of blocks from where Lonnie Franklin was living. And um, Tiffany did a lot of the original research. And and I had this British cameraman who came over. And uh, Tiffany used to really wind him up by saying, you know, hey, Whitey, you're going to get shot and all this stuff. And he got really so freaked out that he left. (laughs) He only Mm -hmm. stayed three or four days, you know, and I said, sort of, thanks, Tiffany. It's really great. You know, you, you, you know, because I kept saying, you know, you're not going to get shot. You're fine. You know, and then in the end, he said, I I can't concentrate on, I'm so wound up. I can't concentrate on the shot. I just can't work properly anymore. And I'm, I'm going to go back to England. And he had bought, you know, he was a very, he was a big guy, very super fit, sort of Wimbledon, ex-Wimbledon tennis player. And he had bought this enormous Alexa camera, very expensive, which, which of course he left with me. And uh, the only person who was free at the time was Barney, my son. And the only thing that happened to Barney was he sort of put his whole shoulder out, lugging this camera around, you know, um, but we had a wonderful, we, you know, we had a kind of wonderful time in Compton. You know, we we really made some great friends. I mean, you know, Pam is a is a real friend, uh, and I'm sh- I'm sure we'll be friends for the rest of our lives. And there were a couple of other people I met that I really thought were exceptional people that I wouldn't have met had I not done the film. You know, so I think for for us it was a great occasion doing that film and. Uh, and it was again what I enjoyed about doing uh, Last Man Standing was those relationships and enjoying being in that community, you know. So it's not I don't I don't regard it as an unsafe place uh, per se. Yeah, no, I take I take your point. Um, I did want to ask you about a character that I thought had an interesting parallel to an earlier film, which is Russell Poole who figures so prominently as, as the catalyst for this film and, and maybe the, the previous one in 2002. But Russell Poole's obsession with this case that became so self-destructive seemed to have a corollary in the private investigator in Curtin Courtney, Tom Grant, yeah. who after being hired by Courtney Love, tells her, you don't need to pay me. <laughs> this is all I want to do is obsess over this case. And he's still still working on it. You know, still totally. I completely agree with you. They're very much the same. They're very much the same. I mean, uh, yeah, I I thought that a thousand times. They're so similar in a way. They're so similar. I mean, I think Tom Grant is um, a much more together individual in a way. He's not as, you know, Russell was a very vulnerable person. Um, very emotional Hmm. Um, and very um, much, yeah, much more vulnerable, I would say, than Tom Grant. Um, I think, you know, Tom Grant had some, (laughs) I think it was difficult. 
having been hired by Courtney, who found his name in the yellow pages on a Saturday morning, and he happened to be in the office, who sends him up to Seattle to find Kurt. He goes around the house um, and doesn't find Kurt Cobain, who's dead in the uh, outhouse. And I think that was probably a difficult thing to live down. Yeah. You know, just not to... And I think, in a way, he was the, the patsy. I think um, Courtney knew that uh, Kurt was dead in the outhouse and sent somebody up there to find him because she didn't want to be the one to break the news. And then when Tom Grant didn't find him, she sent, she sent an electrician up there to rewire the outhouse. And he found uh, Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And, and did you watch the, the, I think it's the next documentary kind of exploring the same terrain, Soaked in Bleach? You know, I never really did. I was in touch with the filmmakers. And, huh. uh, you know, I, I, I think they needed some contacts and stuff. And, you know, we had very pleasant conversations, but I, di I didn't really look at the film. Because it? it does challenge some assertions from your film, and I was just curious. Mm. I've not heard you respond to any of them. One, one being uh, when you refuted the claim that Kurt Cobain, uh, that it was possible for him to operate a weapon, being having injected as much heroin as he did, that that test was dealing with methadone and not heroin was one no, of the things I mean, that Tom Grant raised. Yeah, I I mean, I, I you know, went to some trouble on that okay. and contacted various clinics in, um, actually in London, you know, when I was doing the editing, because I edited that film back here. And uh, they were all of the same opinion about that. In fact, I got, I got the doctor. He actually wrote a whole thing for me and signed it. Um, and it wasn't about methadone. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, 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 sorry, go ahead. I, I, you know, I, and I, I sort of feel that I felt that um, uh, it, it was more, I, I'm, the conclusion I came to was, you know, certainly that, Courtney didn't give a damn, but I, you know, I, 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 I was very. It just seemed improbable that um, that, that you know that anyone was going to get it together to actually kill kill him. They were they were a goofy bunch, and they were all drugged out. And you know Dylan, who who was Kurt's kind of closest friend up there. You know he was in a terrible mess. Um, that you know they were they were very all of them very strung out on drugs. And I think Courtney was in rehab herself at the time. And um, which isn't to say that she didn't want him dead, but that's very different from killing somebody. Was your understanding that a divorce was in, impending? Yeah, I, 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 I think there were 
there was sort of divorce talks and she was having different affairs and um and he was just kind of unraveling and a dreadful mess and i think he had already wasn't there was an incident in rome too before wasn't there a suicide attempt yeah yeah uh, which was very you know uh, i just felt this was a you know the same thing a repetition I, I just thought Soaked in Bleach might be intriguing for you simply because Tom Grant recorded all of his conversations with Courtney Love, and a lot of that was quite revelatory in, in what was included in the film. That would have been very interesting to have heard those conversations. I do think so. Yeah. As well I mean, what, as kind, what, kind of things, what kind of things did she say? Well, he also recorded Courtney Love and Kurt's lawyer who I think was the godmother of their child. And she was filling things in like Courtney had a document of Kurt's handwriting that clearly looked to be a how-to manual for forging <laughs> potentially the suicide note. Um, a call log. Was that of, Rosemary Carroll? Or... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, maybe. I, I think it's highly unlikely um the other item was a call log of all the people that courtney was in touch with that she didn't mm. really volunteer that she was in touch with in the days leading right. up to his death was interesting to say the least who, who like who well, all, like the, the fringe characters that you were talking about, the milieu of people that he was getting drugs with, where mm. she was sending Tom Grant to to find Kurt, go to expensive hotels when everybody around Kurt knew that he stayed at cheap little uh, motels and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, how often she was calling him at the rehab facility and then friends up in the Pacific Northwest. Um uh, that she filed the missing report, report uh, document under the name of Kurt's mother instead of using her own name. Mm. Just some interesting, strange stuff that you well, were sort I, of I, I touching just, upon. I got the feeling that she wanted to separate it all from herself as much as possible. Yeah. I, I think, you know, she she's obviously a you know, fairly odious person, and I think... Um, had attracted so much uh, dislike that, and I, I think you know, everyone from the nanny who I interviewed on all said that there was a lot of death talk. There was a lot of talk about wills, and you know, I, but that I think was more her intention to move on. I think she was done. Hmm. And what did you uh, make of, of the El Duque situation? I mean, that was such an incredible moment. And then mm. the bizarre, enigmatic resolution of him, but getting hit Spinning. by a train? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, there was... El, El Duque was so crazy that there was an element of complete believability about what he said. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's very difficult to really assess 
the validity of of those claims in an environment which was so you know different from you want to say normality uh but it was definitely a, a, another world that was what well, you know you're dealing with most people who are on one very extreme drug or another which which you know change reality and it's quite hard to tell whether the credibility of what people are saying I think as a documentary filmmaker, you're portraying that world, the world that Kurt operated in. Um, and you're presenting that to an audience who, you know, when they look at a newspaper article, they have no real idea of what it feels like to be there, what these people are like, you know, what their reality is like, what you know, I I always felt I was rather cruel to Dylan when I interviewed him because I was interviewing him in a sort of rational way and Dylan was having a real problem just holding his head up, you know. Yeah. Uh, and what about, what about the co- central conflict with Courtney Love while making the film? Um, from what I've read, she was um she pulled the film from Sundance she pulled all the strings she could to get it removed yeah. from there but this does not seem like an adversary that many people would seek out while making a documentary i mean she seems incredibly savvy very bright and uh remarkably vindictive so i just mm. curious like like what was that like for you making this film with somebody at that time who was a, a very powerful figure in music mm. i mean i I think her album, Live Through This, sold something like 10 million albums, and she's on her way to making um, that great film with Woody Woody Harrelson, The People versus Larry Flint. So she's yeah. a beginning beginning of a film career that was looking very successful. She's getting a huge mm-hmm. amount of coverage. Um, and then you're making a film that, that threatens to kind of bring her down, potentially. Well, <clears throat> you know, I'm the kind of filmmaker who... The film is as much a diary of the making of the film as it is anything else. So uh, Courtney, right from the outset, was extremely aggressive and um, actually got MTV to withdraw their funding for the film. So, uh, you know, I started out and... um, I think, you know, the major part of my funding dropped out within the first week of shooting, um, which was something uh, we, you know, had to struggle with. And then, um, you know, she'd been very active in terms of hiring a detective to go around Kurt's friends, uh, basically pressuring them not to, or intimidating them not to talk to the media in any way whatsoever. Um all of which I thought was very interesting and and helped with one's portrait of understanding Courtney and how she operated. So obviously I put all that in the film. And so the film changed very much from initially being much more about Kurt's music and his influences in that in in that part of, you know, 
um, the other musicians who I think it was bands like Napalm Beach and a whole lot of other bands, local bands that he had been very close to, which was, you know, kind of more what I was originally looking for. And then it became much more a film about them and their relationship and the the father. And um, she was such a, a monster to us when we were making the film that we ended up making a film very much about you know she she i think added a lot of credibility to the various conspiracy theories that are going around that she was mad enough and 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 crazy enough to engineer his death hmm. which was and this was coming from what well, obviously it's coming from Tom Grant but it was also coming from her father Hank Harrison um so you know, these were relatively credible figures, you know? Yeah. Um, was and there I any parallel? I took it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask, is, is there any parallel in terms of working against Courtney Love's resistance to your project to what it was like working on Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madam, three years earlier? Not really. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think the Kurt and Courtney film was kind of like a train wreck, you know, which was going to happen. Um, and it, it, it was, it was a, it was a very difficult shoot to be on. You know, I didn't have my normal crew and stuff. Um, the Heidi Fleiss film was was dealing with a bunch of people who lied. And so the structure of that film was um, trying to discern the truth, I think, between all the lies. Um, you know, there were all these compelling characters, Madame Alex, Yvonne Nash, Heidi, Heidi's girls. Um all of whom were very economic with the truth and, and had their own version of, of, of events and, and, and kind of were all keen that their version of, of events was the one that prevailed. And that, I guess, was, you know, provided the structure of the story. I mean, I think in all these films, you have to take the structure of the story from what you're finding. And, and you have to be flexible and fluid with it so that the, the structure of the story has to has to uh, mirror your experience of making the film. Those were the films I was making at that time, that, that, with that structure, that kind of structure. Mm-hmm. I think the structure in Last Man Standing is different. You know, it's much more of a straightforward investigation. It's much, it's much more a film on a mission. I didn't have a mission in Kurt and Courtney or Heidi Fleiss. I was just mirroring these individuals that I was finding. I wonder what draws you to your subjects, because when when I interviewed Louis Theroux on this podcast, I understand his agenda pretty pretty much at the outset as a as a humanist trying to make familiar the unfamiliar. 
um, and then injecting himself into that. He is the smartest person I've ever seen who is consistently condescended to, no matter where he goes, which is a superpower. But I, I'm less clear what draws you to your subject matter. You know, like like in the case of the Grim Sleeper, um, how does that obsess you? Like, what you know, you've, you've told some incredible stories in Los Angeles, but I, I'm not sure exactly sort of emotionally where you live with these documentaries. I, I see how it certainly arouses your curiosity, but I, I, I'm just curious to, to understand that, how subjects obsess you if they do. Um, I don't go in with a... Uh, scenario or or a script or a beginning, middle, and end, anything. Um, I very much just go in to explore a world and the film mirrors that exploration. Um, sometimes I get very close to the subjects. Um, you know, sometimes I have a very adversarial relationship with them. Um, I think, you know, I, I think my films are probably quite complex uh, with many shadings of gray and um, I'm much, probably more interested in the um, contradictions and I'm not I'm not interested in making easy answers and uh, I, I don't feel that's what my interest is or what my job is you know uh, yeah I, I I that's probably it's I don't feel I have a uh, a particular interest I, I you know, want to tell a good story. Uh, and I think each film is kind of like a riddle. And you have to find your way to tell that story. And that's the difficult thing about making a good film, is you, you have to find your way. And it has to be, you know... Um, and and that can be very complicated. In terms of complication, I, I can't think of one of your films that stands out more than than the relationship that you formed with Eileen Warnos and the selling of a serial killer, and, and you followed up on that 11 years later. Um, but working against the backdrop of a subject who's going to be executed that you formed a very close relationship with, um, was that the first time that that had really happened for you? To, to the extent that it did? Yeah, I think I think so. I, and I, I, you know, I, I've struggled to understand why, uh, because in a way she was the most unlikely person to uh, tug my heartstrings in the way she did. Um, but I was very affected by uh, her and what and what happened to her. You know, I think, uh, you know, I can come up with a lot of rational explanations for it, but it was a very emotional experience for me. And, and I felt, um, she was very, 
obviously she you know she'd done uh reprehensible things uh but i think it was you know also just seeing the brutality of that penal system and the hopelessness of uh somebody like that getting any understanding or indeed us learning anything from her mistakes or our mistakes in dealing with her hmm. and that was that was like depressing you know beyond depressing and just uh, seeing the vengefulness um i think uh, at so such close quarters with somebody who was so unwell who had been sort of brutalized for most of her life uh was the thing that left its real impact on me um one of the things i wanted to ask you i'm just curious about is in american culture where you've covered serial killers and then a suicide like like Kurt Cobain's. Um, what is it like? I mean, murder and serial killers have now become almost like the lowest common denominator of shallow entertainment for the culture. Mm. It's a, totally obsessive about it. Um, and yet suicide is actually almost triple the murder rate in the U.S. And every time there's a notable suicide... I need to see all of these phone numbers that I need to call in case it pushes me off a cliff. But there's none of those those kind of warnings associated with serial killers and murder, which is glamorized. And I just wondered, like, what was the difference for you in terms of, I don't know, like the, the tenor of, of the subject matter? Suicide just scares people so much. Like, I mean, it becomes a soup. It's never a spice. Um in the way that murder seems to be. I mean, like I, I'm thinking uh, Anthony Bourdain has a new documentary coming out and mm. it, it's so divisive about don't let the suicide color his entire life. Even though everybody who knew him closely says this is exactly where he was headed from the beginning. Mm. Um, well, I, you know, probably the simplest answer to that is uh, we all dread ending up doing something like that uh, because it's it's such a awful statement of despair followed by how's that going to leave everybody who <clears throat> loves and cares for you if you commit suicide? It's such a bleak gesture in terms of those people that you leave behind. Um, I mean, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, one of my closest school friend uh, committed suicide um, just a few years ago. And I remember him talking about it even when we were at school and we were, you know, 12, 13 years old. Uh, then he was saying, I gotta, I'm going to kill myself when we're 30. We should kill ourselves when we're 30 because it's all the way down from there on. Hmm. Um, and and, and he, he killed himself later than that. But uh, I wasn't altogether completely surprised, and he did it in such a methodical way. But it leaves everybody who loved him in such a devastated state. And it's such an awful statement about uh, somebody's life, isn't it? You know, 
It's such a bleak assessment. I I mean, I think in America, you can't look at the suicide rate without looking at the fact that half the population is on one form of a drug or another. Right. And and the addiction and the chemical effects of these drugs, whether they're tranquilizers or whatever, leaves people in a very precarious state. You know, I, I, I would probably choose to look at that rather than literally just taking the suicide, you know? Yeah, I'm talking to you, and I, I live a block and a half away from the headquarters of Purdue Pharma. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, and it, that is a, it's a, a horribly, you know, because... <laughs> You you want to think that um, the one great gift we have is this wonderful life that we have, which is short, and uh, that that people should be able to celebrate uh, their time. So uh, all that you know, there's a lot, so much ha- unhappiness around us, and you you that of course promotes a lot of other questions as to where where and why that you know unhappiness comes where it comes from and probably what the suicide you... rate is higher than it ever has been yeah and i mean it's it's also uh adolescents right now in the US at least show the highest reported cases of anxiety depression and suicidal ideation in in recorded history so i mean it it threatens to become an even bigger issue yeah and that is, you know, I mean, I have a, a nine-year-old, and and the world has become very, uh, well, it's become very complicated, and 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 it has, it, you know, you kind of nostalgically look back to a much earlier time, wondering if everything was simpler and it was. Uh, an easier easier world an easier life to live in you know um, it it you know suicide opens uh, a rift of not only self examining questions but so many questions about how you cope with life and uh what what is what it is that occurs with people? I mean, well, so many not, kids. Sorry, yeah. I mean, so many kids are on drugs too at a really early sure. age. I mean, you know, and you have to ask yourself questions, I guess, about the pharmaceutical que- uh, companies and the stranglehold they seem to have on the medical profession and the completely irresponsible dosing of people who aren't that educated, who just take things in an unquestioning way and don't really research, don't read the the small print on the prescriptions. You know, it's... uh, Well, we're not in a healthy state. And and I think one of the things that your film's offer as a real service is as we look at uh, iconic figures like 
Biggie and Tupac and what they represent to hip-hop or Whitney Houston in your film Can I Be Me 2017 or Kurt Cobain is we, we are now of a generation where the number one ambition that children have is to be famous, not an achievement that would make them famous, not a, a path to it, but just being famous. And when you show us these icons who seem completely miserable, I mean, the milieu that you depict in Last Man Standing, even more so than, than in Biggie and Tupac in 2002, I mean, it looks awful where, where Tupac is just completely losing himself and his identity in fame and image and all that kind of thing. The mm-hmm. depiction of Whitney Houston was so tragic, Kurt Cobain's life seems completely miserable after he crosses the threshold into this dreamscape that you have a bunch of kids that need to be self-medicated if they're not famous. But if you do get famous, I mean, we're seeing it with Britney Spears in the news right now, talking about her breakdown and this conservatorship and that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems like fame is a subject that quite intrigues you and and, uh, the rewards and betrayals of the American dream, as it were, through the the vehicle of fame, am, am I yeah, right well, in that? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember Whitney said, you know, that incredible thing in an interview. I, I'm probably not going to get it right, but she said, um, "I love, you know, I love dealing with success. Everybody wants success. It's great to be good at what you do, but fame is something that you can't deal with. It's just." It's 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 something that swallows you up and leaves you with nothing. And um, I think it takes somebody who's immensely sophisticated to deal with fame and to deal with that kind of... I mean, you see a few people who use it to their advantage. You know, they... They have things they believe in. They have causes they want to promote. They're, and and they also have the largesse in terms of um, knowing their own, you know, they, they know that their fame is ridiculous in a context and they don't take it seriously. But I think it's very hard to uh, rise to that to have that knowledge. I think it takes a very sophisticated person to not get a big head and behave badly. I mean, you know, I look amongst people I know and um, it's, it's very few people who become nicer and kinder when they get richer and more famous. Hmm. And of course, you know, some do. Some... Some really do, but I think it's the hardest thing in the world to do. You I'm know, trying to, to think of I'm trying to think of them, and all I can come up with is Paul Newman. <laughs> well, you know, maybe. Um, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you look at things. I mean, Audrey Hepburn seemed pretty amazing. Yeah, That's didn't she one. go? She went all over the place and um, um, I mean I think you know someone like well David Attenborough is is Mm -hmm. rather amazing 
you know, and, and pretty selfless. I mean, I, I sort of admire him. Um, no, I take your you know, point. I'm, I'm mainly teasing, but, but no, I take your point. Um, I, I, but I think it's a very hard thing to do. And also you don't, you know, it requires somebody of that kind of ilk to not take themselves seriously because it's all ridiculous. Hmm. You know, maybe um, maybe Louis is a bit like that too, you know. That he's a better person as a result. Louis through, yeah, I think he's, you know, he's uh, he's pretty modest, actually, and uh, a caring kind of guy. Yeah, I find I find his dynamic and I mean, kind of like with you, like you and Barney. It's interesting to ponder Louis and Paul. I've been trying to get Paul to, to have a conversation right. with him. Right. <laughs> but I wondered what it was like to bring your son into this industry. Um, what are the pros well, and cons of that dynamic? It's Well, it's difficult. I mean, it is very difficult. And I thought about it a lot myself because I think Barney's actually had quite a hard time. I mean, not directly because of me, um, but he's very accomplished. He's, he's a really, he, he picked up his mother's sort of, instinctual way of film, filming which is is something is you know is kind of almost instinctual more than learnt which is just a feeling you you just kind of have a sense what the dynamic in a conversation is and you're on the right person at the right time or whatever that that kind of and obviously you have to be very technically competent to catch it all too but you know he then went on to work for a number of other filmmakers uh, you know, one during this terrible fire in California. And he's a very personable chap. And, you know, he likes people and people really like him and they confide in him and they share their emotions with him. And it was a very emotional thing. Some of the people had lost loved ones and stuff. Then the director, who had never been involved, came on, you know, came on the shoot. And, you know, one of these people who's been to Oxford and lets everybody know it every second sentence that they've been to Oxford and then gets people to repeat themselves and, you know, kind of ask things from them on an emotional level that nobody should ask who's got any sensitivity whatsoever. And, and, and Barney was in the, you know, was the guy who established the relationships with them and just felt terrible. Uh, and actually couldn't couldn't sit there and watch it, you know, because I, I think the relationships you, you form in film, uh, you know, when you're doing these things can be very deep and very, you know, very, very personal. And uh, if somebody doesn't respect them, uh, it's a betrayal, really, of your relationship with them. And he, you know, he went through that on a few shoots and I think just decided he, he just couldn't do it anymore. Hmm. Uh, so I felt, I didn't feel too good about introducing him to that, uh, and that sort of dilemma, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, in 
in boxing, there are way more children of their trainers who die than non-familial dynamics there. It's very interesting. A father is far more willing to let his son die in the ring than somebody not biologically related. It's, it seems like totally really? counterintuitive. Yeah. How weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, last question, if you just have a couple more minutes to spare. Yeah. Um, I wondered about subjects for films that you were really interested in pursuing but weren't able to, and I was hoping that Michael Jackson was on the list. I don't think he was, actually. Um, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I certainly wouldn't have wanted to do that, you know, the sort of Neverland thing. Hmm. Um, because I thought it was so uh, well horribly painful Um, but also one wants to learn more about him and what got him to that place I think Uh, I do anyway you know Hmm. you know um But I, I, I wasn't. I, I had never thought of that. I was, I guess, you know, I, I did work on a film. I had started a film about Diana, who I knew somewhat, and um, I think there was a great film to be made there, a sort of Shakespearean tragedy. Mm. Um, you know, we had a lunch a couple of times, and uh, but it, that was just not. It was going to be, you know, it, it would have been, a, I, I think one could have done a great uh, piece. What were, and I then mean, she, I was just going to say, she's. Just, I think she was just turning 60 very, very soon. Um, yeah. I wondered, like, what was, I mean, I just watched The Crown, my girlfriend and I are British files, and I was fascinated to know if in any way that augured to who you met. I mean, the the depiction of her was so fascinating and and enigmatic. Yeah, I mean, I probably I met her in around '97, I think, around that oh. that time. Oh, just before she died. Uh, was it just before she died, or maybe I wonder if it was earlier? I think she died in '97, was, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, maybe it was a few years before. Huh? Maybe a few years. Before. I remember what HBO wanted. You know, were interested, and I was I researched it for them, but it must have mm. been a few. I don't know. I'm not very good on dates, but um, it was just after she'd split up with Charles, uh, and and you know, it was it was um, she was a bit like a sort of deer in headlights, really with all this chaos going on around her and, uh, you know, and, and also sort of rather valiantly battling the institution of the royal family. It was, uh, you know, she was living in Kensington Palace at the time. Um, and there was definitely, except the trouble is, you know, that there, there was so much going on that you didn't, that you didn't know and there were so many players involved and it was so already so crazy um you know that 
and and I guess that whole crazy stuff that Martin Bashir did, you know, forging documents and it was it was an unholy mess, really. Hmm. Any uh, other stand out stand out to you of subject matter that you not, wanted not, to pursue? Not many, not many. No, I mean I've normally hmm. just done what I wanted to do. Hmm. That that was probably the one that I I didn't manage to do, that I started and it just was too difficult. How what was it like? Last question. What was it like pursuing Sarah Palin the way you did? Uh, it was I unsatisfactory. Met you. Unsatisfactory. Huh. Hmm. Well, there were again there were all, all these different people working on projects about her, Joe McGuinness and. Um, a couple of other people and it all just got to they, you know they were all very competitive and crazy I mean the, the 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 good thing about most documentarians is they're actually pretty supportive of one another I mean that's been my experience um, you know and they give each other their contacts and so on and, and the experience with Sarah Palin was the opposite that everyone behaved really badly and at the same time we were in this freezing bloody place um it was it you know it was uh it, it wasn't a good experience did you did you see like the blueprint of palin kind of paving the way for trump and and that whole momentum that swept him into yes, the office yes i think so in terms of yes in terms of people just don't give a shit, and yeah. they're not interested in they're not interested in democracy or any of those highfalutin values that somebody else might believe in. That I guess we all thought were um, part of our vocabulary, and of course everybody did. And, and I think we've all learned that they don't. <laughs> Well, have a lot of fun, and thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Okay, good to talk to you. Likewise. Take care, Nick. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.